The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Hello, this is Carol Bossert, and welcome to Museum Life. Uh, Today's guest uh, is another in the series that I am doing based on my recent uh, attendance to the Association of Science and Technology uh, Center Conference in Raleigh, North Carolina. And as I've told my my listeners, I had not been to this conference in uh, several years because of other uh, conflicting conferences, but I was so impressed with the work that is going on and with the speakers uh, that I heard. And today's guest is is equally wonderful. Now, I know I always tell you that... you know, this guest is the very best guest, and of course they all are, but you know, in truth, there are some guests and frankly some uh, topics that I think are so very important. Uh, if I could underscore them with gold stars, I would, and this is one of those uh, topics. Uh, Beth Redmond Jones has been a colleague of mine for uh, many, many years. And uh, she has recently become very involved in uh, helping us all better understand the issues uh, for our guests who have uh, autistic uh, issues or on, on the autism spectrum. And uh, so I and Beth gave a very heartfelt and wonderful presentation at Aztec. And I have... Uh, convinced her to recap some of that here in our conversation. So without further ado, Beth, welcome to the show. Thank you, Carol. It's a pleasure to be here. Beth, uh, could you please, uh, and as we all know, I do this every uh, every week with every guest, could you just uh, share with our listeners your career trajectory and especially those important experiences that have shaped your uh, museum practice? Sure. Um so as a child, my parents always took me to museums, um, especially the Natural History Museum in Cincinnati, where I was just a, uh avid visitor spelunker going through their cave there. They had their full immersive experience and just transfixed me and transformed the way um, I think about experiences. 
And I think that was really kind of a pivotal moment for me that I really knew that I wanted to be um, do something in the museum field. Um, I went on to get my BA in art history from the University of New Hampshire and finally got a master's in museum studies from John F. Kennedy University in Berkeley. And I've been in the museum field almost 30 years now, which I hate to admit, but um, I've worked in and out of house of uh, institutions, in-house at the Exploratorium, the Tucson Museum of Art, the Aquarium of the Pacific, and now most currently I'm at the San Diego Natural History Museum. And as a consultant, I worked with a variety of museums um, in all disciplines because my focus is really a um, visitor-centric focus and really looking at how visitors learn, what makes them comfortable, what engages them, what stimulates them. And that really crosses in my mind across all disciplines. It doesn't have to necessarily be science or art. Well, I think that uh, you probably wanted to focus on uh, on museum visitors because you yourself were such a great museum visitor. That may be. Um, I, I know that one of the experiences I also had as a child that was very pivotal for me was when I was, um, my mother took me to a lunch with a friend of hers um, at the Art Museum in Cincinnati. And needless to say, at seven years old, I was not thrilled about this. But it turns out it was um, Millard Rogers, who, gosh, was the um, director of that institution for over 20 years. And I remember going behind the scenes and taking me back there and um, we walked into this collections area, and at that very moment, they were pulling a Greek statue out of a crate. And to this day, I hate to say I could really care less about Greek statues, but the fact that that came from someplace else and was packed in a crate, and it was just that whole behind the scenes that there's this whole other world going on, just fascinated me. So it's something I'm really working on is how do we break down that front of house and back of house for visitors, because there is some fascination about behind the scenes. Yes, absolutely. Everybody likes to go backstage or behind the the curtain. I'm always reminded of that wonderful Charles Wilson Peale uh, image of the uh, Philadelphia Academy of Sciences where he's sort of peering, peeking back a curtain, and you see all the stuff behind it. So I agree with you completely. Now, Beth, uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, you gave a presentation at uh, at the recent Aztec conference about the challenges that museum environments pose to individuals who are on the autism spectrum, a subject for which you are uniquely qualified. Uh, so why did you decide to share your personal story now? Well, um, so I have a 19-year-old daughter, uh, Naomi, who is on the spectrum, who is very high-functioning, incredibly insightful, and um, literate, and um, a colleague of mine, Eric Siegel from the New York Hall of Science, came over to, to dinner when he was in town uh, a few months ago, and he and Naomi had this really amazing conversation about what it's like for her to visit museums and um, and the challenges and the stresses that are put upon her, but the things that really engage her. And he was putting together an, a session at Aztec about uh, designing for mindfulness and flow, and he asked me if Naomi and I would be a part of this session. We were kind of an add-on to it, and um, I said, yeah, I think so. Let me think about it, and I want to talk with Naomi because I didn't want to force Naomi into doing anything that she didn't want to do, and um, I know as a 19-year-old articulate young woman, she has her opinions about things, and 
So we talked about it, and it actually took about three months for us to um, make the video that was um, presented at Aztec. But she said to me, she said, I want to do this because, you know, I've grown up with you and all of your museum friends, and I want them to start thinking about how to make um, better experiences for people like me who are on the spectrum. So I am um, really grateful. What I wasn't expecting was I hadn't really processed what this was like, um, what this was going to be like for myself. I've confided in many of my um, close colleagues in the museum field and, and personal friends. They know about Naomi and they know the challenges that we've had and, you know, the successes we've also had with her. And when I was up there and we were doing that session and I was up there and Naomi was talking on the video and Eric Siegel turned around and looked at me and started rubbing my arm and I looked down at him and his eyes were completely welled up. And then I looked at two friends of mine in the audience and their eyes were completely welled up. And my throat started tightening and my stomach started tightening and I realized I had reached a place of no return that I had not prepared myself for. And a very dear friend of mine, Penny Jennings, afterwards said, you took the step over the threshold. And now this is, you know, you've always been, you've always been an advocate, but on a quiet level. And so now I'm being much more loud about it. So, um, but that was, it was an amazing session. We have gotten so many positive responses about it. And I believe Eric will actually be posting um, some of our um, sections of our PowerPoint on a blog soon. I can let you know what that is. Oh, that would be great. And congratulations to, to Eric uh, for, for uh, suggesting this and nurturing you through it. But, but really, uh, thank you for your courage. Uh, as, a, as a mother, uh, many of us uh, who have been in the field for a long time, who you know, simply were working mothers uh, at a time where, where being a working mother wasn't, uh, wasn't an easy thing, and, and, and we weren't encouraged to talk about it in our professional lives. We, we, I don't know, it, it sounds as if you did the same thing that I did. You, you built up walls. You had a work life and work friends, and you had a personal life and personal friends. And in the museum world, sometimes uh, they overlap a little bit more than in other fields. But we kept our guard up for a long, long time, and, and I'm, uh, I'm encouraged that we're all breaking things down a little bit more. So thanks so much, Beth. Oh, my pleasure. And, you know, you're very right about these walls, which is unfortunate. And, um, I mean, especially with, I mean, raising a daughter. I mean, she was only recently diagnosed five years ago. And so as a young child, there was always really um, huge challenges that we would have in going places, whether it was the grocery store or a museum or even just to someone's house for dinner. And, you know, growing up, and, you know, I talked with doctors about it, and, but she was very verbal, and they said, oh, no, God, girls are shy. Boys are the autistic ones. And, if, you know, you look at the research that's out there, it's five times, um, autism, autism is almost five times more common among boys. So it's like one in 42 boys than among girls, which is like one in 189. And to this day, I have yet to meet another family that has, has an autistic girl. Um, they've all been boys, and it's, it's very interesting looking at the research now and trying to tease out why that may be. But, um, yeah. Well, no, I, think, it, it, I, it, I think you're right. I think the more, the more we learn, um, I, I uh, 
I have some some similar stories, not with uh, a child on the uh, autism spectrum, but but just uh, being a parent, not knowing what's going on, and having a medical community that still doesn't quite get it in many ways is uh, is very frustrating uh, personally. And I think that that's one reason why I am so pleased that that you have uh, been able to bring this issue to the attention of museums. Uh, I was not even. Uh, listening to your your talk and particularly uh, the video that you did with your with uh, Naomi really brought me up short in many ways as an interpretive planner and thinking about ways in which inadvertently I have contributed to uh, people uh, with uh, that uh, have have these. Um, uh, have these situations and their families uh, and making them feel uncomfortable or unable to go to a museum and my my heart really breaks about that uh, can you share with us a, a little bit about what Naomi uh, taught you and taught Eric about uh, uh, how museums can become safer and more enjoyable places for uh, individuals with autism and and also sensory other sensory processing issues and their families Gosh, it's an endless list of things that she has taught me. (laughs) Um, I think some of the challenges that those on the spectrum face are, um, a lot of them are very related to sensory processing issues. And museums are not necessarily quiet spaces. And those noises are not necessarily from the exhibits, but they can also be generated from the crowds that are around them. And one of the things that Naomi talked about in the video at Aztec was how when we used to go to MoMA, we actually bought a membership so we could go an hour early before the museum opened to the general public. And that was to allow her to have space around her, to have less people, to have less sound, and less stimuli, um, visual stimuli of people moving around, colors of clothing, that type of thing, so she could actually enjoy the experience. But leaving MoMA at the very end was incredibly challenging because we had to walk through the lobby. And the atrium was, their atrium lobby is very um, low ceiling, very tight quarters. People just jammed in there waiting for the 11 o'clock hour for the museum to open. And we'd have to develop a plan for how we were going to get out of the museum without her having just being too oversensitized and have um, meltdowns. So I think that's something that was really compelling in hearing her voice talk about those challenges that she as an autistic individual faces. And that was something that was really important to me and to Eric with this session is that she had the voice. Um, I, as a parent, can talk about what it was like for me raising her and having to deal with the ramification of these situations. But for her to um, articulate those experiences was something even more powerful and I think more heartfelt and people actually... um, got it, is what a lot of people have said to me, as they finally are starting to understand, because they heard it from someone who's very articulate. And clearly she likes museums. She loves museums. She loves science museums. She loves natural history museums. Um, My favorite line that she said is that she loves um, going into natural history museums and looking at all the taxidermy, because taxidermy doesn't talk. And 
People laughed about that because it was just a very sweet, innocent comment. But then a lot of people came up to me afterwards and was like, now, wait a minute, what do you mean by her statement that they don't talk? And I said, because she doesn't have to engage in a conversation. She doesn't have to look and understand what your hand motions are, what your body language is, if you're being sarcastic, if you're being funny, if you're being serious. I said, because those are all things that are very challenging for her and others on the spectrum to process. So it's, you know, it's a way for her to um, basically try to explain how it makes it easier for her and others to get through a museum experience. I mean, she grew up at when the Exploratorium, um, the old Exploratorium out in the marina, and that was really challenging for her, especially, you know, after I worked there and a lot of my friends were there and we would go, and it was so crowded and such a sensory overload. And we routinely would have meltdowns, and I just had to chalk it up to too much going on or her being too tired or too hungry and not knowing that it was the autism and the sensory processing issues that were actually activating this and that I took her to that environment and I caused that because I knew what that environment was like. Mm -hmm. So it's um, made us as a family think a lot more about when we go someplace and plan things very strategically with timing and that type of thing in order to create the best visitor experience for her. Absolutely, absolutely, and 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 I think what 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 Naomi um, uh, uh, has taught me through through you is that our here our museums are have a wealth, truly treasure troves of experiences and opportunities for all members of our community, and and uh, and. And particularly this one, uh, perhaps opening doors and having experiences that uh, they can have no other way uh, because the animals don't talk. And inadvertently, uh, we we as museum professionals uh, don't uh, either do things or don't do things uh, that make it difficult for uh, uh, for those individuals to really uh, take advantage of our our uh, institutions. And and that uh, that's something that we have to change. So uh, we are going to take our first of our two breaks, and when we come back, more with Beth Redmond-Jones and talking about these issues of uh, making our places safer for individuals with autism. Uh, We will be back in a moment. This is Carol Bossert from Museum Life. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Tune into the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. For 27 years, KidStar has empowered thousands of kids across the country. And now we have the opportunity to empower children around the world. KidStar is announcing a new radio show called Voyage Earth. Voyage Earth will empower kids from across the world. KidStar has created a Kickstarter campaign just for this new undertaking. By pledging to Kickstarter, 
You pledge for a future of empowered people to come. My name is Rinsley from Indy on Voice America Kids. I want to thank you for being a backer of our Kickstarter, Voyager. Kickstarter, we empower kids. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life, and I'm here with Beth Redmond-Jones. We're talking about an issue that is near and dear to both of our hearts, and that is how museums can better serve uh, the community, uh, our population of individuals that are on the uh, autism spectrum or have uh, other uh, uh, sensory uh, processing issues. And before I forget, I want to let all of our listeners know that you can can also reach Beth on Twitter at at B Redmond Jones. That's B R E D M O N D Jones, where she tweets about museum, museums and autism. Uh, and uh, I could say that they're all, always really, really useful bits of information. Beth, before we go on too much farther, um, I, I think it, it would be a really good idea to make sure that we are on the same vocabulary and understanding. So, uh, you know, about what what we're talking about uh, with with uh, when we talk about autism. So, could you give us the brief, non medical, you know, more uh, 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 definition of, of autism as as you've uh, come to learn about it? Sure, definitely. So, um, autism or autism spectrum disorder—you'll hear it. You'll hear either term used, um, are both terms for a group of um, brain development disorders. So, basically, people with autism may communicate, interact, or behave, or learn in different ways from most people that have a quote-unquote typical brain. Um, so someone with autism may um, inappropri- may respond inappropriately during conversations. They may misread verbal interactions. Um, they can have difficulty building friendships um, appropriate to their age. And as in our case, um, they often are really um, rigid and overly dependent on routines. So... Um, Change is, change is a hard thing when you spring them, spring it on them. Um, and then the other thing that's really interesting about those on the spectrum is that many of them may have what's referred to as a special interest. So um, there's a documentary um, about a, an autistic boy who is just obsessed with lampposts. I've met other autistic um, boys who are, you know, really into fire trucks or into stamp collecting. Um, Naomi is really into taxidermy and old books and playing The Sims and building um, 
architecturally accurate Victorian houses in The Sims. It's quite amazing what um, she has managed to get this computer program to do. Um, but, you know, there's this saying in the autism community that's um, attributed to Dr. Stephen Shore, and it's, if you've met one autistic person, you've met one autistic person, and that each of them are so unique and no two are the same. So what's really frustrating is, is categorizing someone that is autistic because it really is a spectrum um, of disorders and of functionality. So prior to, I think it was May of 2013, um, individuals were diagnosed with separate disorders. There was the autistic disorder, there was Asperger's syndrome, which is more of your high-functioning individuals, where the autistic disorder were those um, who were low-functioning, meaning very um, no verbal abilities, um, not able to communicate, that type of thing. And then there was this catch-all diagnosis called PDD, which is pervasive developmental disorder, not otherwise specified as being the technical uh, medical term. And that was for those individuals who kind of fell in between that range, and they weren't really quite sure what category they fell into. Well, with the new DSM-5 that came out in May of 13, all of that was um, changed, and autism got lumped into one grouping called autism spectrum disorder, and individuals are given a number on the spectrum, which I still have to say I do not understand very well um, because they are so unique. I'm not quite sure how you can lump them into a specific number, but that's the way the medical profession has um, decided to pursue it right now, so... Well, that's uh, thank you. That's that's very very interesting, and and I'm going to ask a, a just a, a real ignorant, um, uh, but but maybe obvious question because I don't want there to be any misunderstanding. And and mm-hmm. uh, and of course, you know, yes, listeners, neither one of us are medical doctors, but uh, but we're mothers, and we know we know a lot about uh, about our kids and what they've had to uh, deal with. And but the point is, is that autism is not the same and Nothing on the autism spectrum has anything to do with, say, ADD or ADHD, right? No, it does not. They're very separate diagnoses. Um, They each have specific criteria for what would um, give them the diagnosis of autism or diagnosis of ADHD or ADD. Um, There are cases where there are autistic individuals who have ADHD or who may have ADD in addition to autism, but they are very separate, they are separate um, diagnoses or conditions. Good, good. Yes, yes. I just, I think that's, that's really important. Uh, and, and again, um, even though today, on today's show, we're going to be, you know, we're talking about individuals on the autism spectrum. Uh, we also know that there is a population of individuals with lots of other kinds of uh, uh, sensory challenges, attention challenges, uh, uh, learning challenges, and they're all part of our museum community uh, that uh, that probably can be served in really unique and wonderful ways if we are aware of their needs, uh, and often often we aren't. And it, that, I guess, just brings me to another question, Beth, and that is, is 
is autism i mean what what's the is it on the rise is it our is our environment creating um uh, more individuals who who face these challenges or is it just that we are now more aware of it because it can be diagnosed do you have a do you have a sense um so you know i think it's a combination of things i it's a combination of the two actually you know in in 2000, it was one in 150 children were diagnosed with an autism spectrum disorder, and today that number is now one in 68 children. So that's a dramatic shift in 14 years. Um, it's and then there's this whole, and I think one of the things is when Naomi was a child, autism was at, was attributed to mercury and vaccine and. Um, and, uh, vaccinations, and that has been completely disproven. And some of the most current research that is coming out is um, based on research that's coming out of these 50 different laboratories that found more than 100 genes that were mutated in autistic children that um, were not mutated in typical children. And this is actually, if you go to, it's in the, it's in the last couple months of Nature magazine. Um, it's a really interesting article, and I have a post of it on my Twitter site. Um, but it, it talks about this and how it's, they're actually really understanding now that it's more of a genetic issue than environmental impacts or um, Mercury or, you know, those types of things are mothers doing something when they're pregnant. And there's, there's still a lot of controversy out there and a lot of um, differing opinions. And, you know, I'm sure there will be people who listen to this who have a difference of opinion from what I'm stating. But from what I've been reading and understanding, and I'm very much based in the science um, and looking at the scientific work that's coming out and out of the CDC and Mayo Clinic and other places like UCLA, those are, you know, places that I rely on for good, solid information. Well, um, I, I actually, I have read the Nature article. Um, my background uh, was in genetics, uh, you know, 100 years ago before I, uh, I shifted into the museum field. So I, I do think that, that this is very interesting. It's in, in some ways, it's very liberating for parents. I don't know how you've, you, you know, greeted that information, but it's so easy for uh, our society and the medical community to, you know, well, one, want an easy answer. Uh, you know, it was a vaccine that you gave. But as a parent, you're always then in, put in the position of second guessing. You know, oh, I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have let them have that ice cream cone. I shouldn't have let them go on that field trip, uh, or or what it, whatever the situation is. So uh, it's it's fascinating, and it's going to take a lot longer to unravel. But of course, that's cold comfort for uh, those of us who are dealing with these issues and uh, and watching our children. Uh, struggle, particularly into adulthood. Um, well, and, so, I think and I think that's a really important point is that, you know, most people think of autism as a, um, as a children having um, autism. But these kids grow up. And as I know with you having a son that's in the early 20s and mine being almost 20, it's, you know, there are new um, challenges that they have to face being an adult and that we as older adults have to face having them. And it's, you know, there, there's talk of, some sources say there's roughly 80% of individuals with autism are under the age of 22, 
and that the prevalence of autism has increased tenfold in the last decade, which means the number of kids with autism who will be becoming adults over the next few years is huge. And part of our medical um, the way the, med- the medical field is set up is that the, um, I'm, a, I'm losing my words here, the, what, the services that they need are, they're, they're terming off of those. And so the real challenges, you know, come into then how, how do we address all of these autistic adults and their needs in an effective way? And one of, and I really started looking at that just in regards to Naomi and my experiences being in the museum field, and how do museums address autistic adults? And this summer, I had a researcher working for me, and she spent about three months looking at museums across the U.S. into Europe. I was posting stuff on Twitter, we're posting stuff on Facebook, um, looking at all avenues that we could. And what we found is that there were over 60 museums in the U.S. that were offering, offering autism programs, but they were all for children. There's nothing for adults. And I can't quite get my head around why that is, except that maybe this field is still so young and we're still trying to understand so much of it and that all of these individuals are so completely unique from one another that there is no easy category to put them into in order to create programming. So this is something that I'm really focusing my practice and my research on now is, you know, as I move forward with my career. Wow, Beth, I, I'm, my mouth is open. Too bad this isn't, you know, video and it's just radio or maybe it's better. Uh, no, I, I can I can understand it. Uh, I can't excuse it, but I can understand it. Uh, and it probably, if we would scratch the surface of some of our of our other museum programming, we we might find similar things that uh, are many of our museums. I think are still set up that programming is directed to people in 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 pretty broad categories. Uh, we have huge education departments who devote themselves to uh, children learning from you know birth to 14 or 15 because they're in the school system we then uh, and and so that's probably where their resources lie and that's where the programming goes and uh, and then other audiences that fall out of that box uh, aren't uh, there's there's no nexus there's no place to hang on to and have those conversations because we don't necessarily there's there's no group within the museum who is looking for special niche programming you know, every programming at that stage is always for you know, huge crowds of people. And I, I think maybe that's one other thing that uh, in some of our discussions uh, might be a nice fallout for us to remember that audiences aren't apples. They're all individuals, and they, yeah. and, and they have small... And, and, and museums, whether we want to think about it or not, we're a niche market. And uh, I think maybe if we start thinking about things in more uh, empathetic ways to specific groups and specific individuals, we might be able to find our way clear to uh, uh, to to broader programs beyond that uh, you know that school school age child. I completely agree. Something that uh, definitely needs some more focus and attention. Yes, yes, I I I absolutely agree. 
we, I have so many other questions, Beth, I want to ask you um, about how we can now, as museum professionals with this heightened awareness, we can begin to uh, think about best practices, how we might be able to start changing some of our programming and exhibition ideas uh, to address the needs of this, this audience. But before I do, and I don't want to cut you off, I think we're going to break one more time. We're breaking a little early this time so uh, Beth has enough time to uh, collect her thoughts and answer this question. So we will be back in one moment. Uh, You are listening to Carol Bossert for Museum Life. We will be back in a moment. Thank you. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has launched our mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host, no matter where you are, in the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. For 27 years, KidStar has empowered thousands of kids across the country. And now we have the opportunity to empower children around the world. KidStar is announcing a new radio show called Voyage Earth. Voyage Earth will empower kids from across the world. KidStar has created a Kickstarter campaign just for this new undertaking. By pledging to Kickstarter... You pledge for a future of empowered people to come. My name is Mark from the tech team on Voice Market Kids Network. I want to thank you for being a backer of our Kickstarter Voyager. Kickstart, we empower kids. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert. Uh, you're listening to Museum Life, and today I am with Beth Redmond Jones, and we're talking about how uh, museums can better serve uh, individuals in their communities with uh, who are on the uh, autism spectrum. And uh, right before we went on break, uh, Beth reminded 
us, uh, sort of the obvious, uh, but we don't think about it, that uh, with all of these autistic children, they're growing up. They will soon be adults. Uh, We need to make sure that as we develop our programming and opportunities that we remember that these are are full-fledged adults, even though they they may have some additional challenges, and our museums are the place uh, that they should be able to find safety, refuge, and and uh, and and uh, wonderful opportunities. So, Beth, um, I know you've been thinking about this a lot uh, as a mother and as a professional, and also your uh, you are a wonderful exhibit developer, exhibit designer. So, how are you sort of merging these two things uh, together, and what sort of design principles might we sort of follow? Uh, to make our 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 general exhibitions, the things uh, and and our museums themselves, the physical space, uh, more enjoyable and accessible. Well, you know, it's interesting. When the ADA law came out, it made us all really think much differently about physical accessibility, um, having space to move through if you're in a wheelchair and how high or low a table may be if you have a cane. Um, um, for those with visual impairments, but the one thing that the ADA law didn't really take into context or put into context, I should say, are those with cognitive challenges, and that's what we're dealing with with those with autism or sensory processing issues. And so some of the things that I really think about is, you know, what would make a successful experience for anyone, regardless of whether they have a typical brain or an atypical brain? I mean, I know when I, uh, you know, unwillingly have to go to a mall to go get something, it is sensory overload within, you know, 20 minutes, much less I can't imagine having that issue on a daily basis and what that means. And so how can we create museum experiences in an environment that is um, safe and low sensory yet still engaging and stimulating for everyone? And so I'm always trying to figure out, like, what does that look like? So I think about sensory issues. Um, I try to be more conscious in creating quiet areas in the exhibitions that I work on, um, using materials that will help absorb sound. And at our museum, at the San Diego Natural History Museum, if we have groups of autistic visitors that come in and we have an available classroom, we'll give that to them as a quiet room. So because our museum is very loud and stimulating because of the way it was designed. And so if they do get overstimulated, they at least have a place that they can go to to stim and desensitize and try to pull themselves together so they can either continue with engaging in the museum or wait for the rest of their group to finish. Um, Light levels are things that we don't think about. I really try to stay away from very high or very low light levels. Even worse are those that dramatically change from one light level to another. That's hugely jarring on someone's um, sensory system and how they process. And I'm really trying to add in more natural light whenever we can. Um, an exhibition, that, a permanent exhibition that we're working on right now at the Natural History Museum is has these two beautiful skylights that we opened up that were part of the original building. And part of the gallery is just flooded with this lovely natural light. And it just makes you feel so much better than having all these, instead of having all the track lights and everything hitting everything. It just gives a much really warmer experience to the space. I think the one thing that I know is an issue, especially for Naomi, that I've been really conscious of, and it's something that I tried to articulate at the Aztec conference, is about sound. So. 
for those of us with normal or typical non-autistic brains, you know, when we go someplace like a museum and it's really crowded, we hear all this white noise around us. But my daughter processes sounds very different, and most people with sensory processing issues do. And what I have found from individuals that I've talked with and worked with over the years is that they'll start by hearing maybe it's the general sound of the museum as they walk in. And then they'll hear the conversation of the people that are standing right next to them layered on top of that. And then they'll hear someone coughing who is across the gallery on top of that. Then there's the baby crying who's, you know, 50 feet away in the stroller, and that sound gets on top of that. Then you have the person at the ticket counter asking you what, kind of ticket you want, and if you want to go see a 3D movie and all these choices, that and choices are often very hard to make, and then you've got sounds coming over the loudspeaker, and it all just lay, layers up one upon another, and they're heard individually. So I think it's really hard for individuals to think about all these things firing at you individually and having to process all of that when all of us hear, hear it as this kind of a white noise. And so... It's. I'm not sure how we address that with museums, to be honest. It's a question that was asked to me at Aztec because this is the way all of our lobbies are set up. And um, so it's something I think we just need to be cognizant of. And I think one of the reasons that I think we've been more active in going to museums, um, buying memberships like at MoMA so we can go in an hour early so there is less of that um, auditory stimuli. We'll go to museums late in the afternoon on a Wednesday because there's very few visitors there and there's less audible stimuli. So it's um, a real challenge and I think something we really need to think about. And in the exhibit galleries where we can control those things, I think we need to be really cognizant of controlling them and not just having speakers blaring out things at you know, different stations because those with auditory processing issues, that is just a huge, um, huge stimuli. Yes, and for my, and for those of us who are, who are not diagnosed with anything in particular, uh, except maybe just you know crankiness and age, uh, also don't like uh, a lot of sounds blaring. Uh, so so perhaps uh, you know you mentioned the ADA and and we have uh, we have learned or or we've at least accepted uh, or rationalized, I suppose, if 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 uh, one is still uh, uh, irritated about. Uh, the ADA rules that they really do work for everyone, and we always cite the uh, you know the ramps on the on the sidewalks or, or something else that is that has made all of our lives easier. And when we visit places that don't have those things, we're actually sort of shocked. Maybe we're looking at that same kind of you know sort of universal uh, uh, accessibility again, and perhaps uh, addressing at, or and uh, being conscious of of uh, the need needs of uh, autistic um, uh, peop- uh, individuals on the autism spectrum, we could make experiences better for all. I completely agree. I think if we think more about what we envision would be a comfortable environment for us and not projecting what we think other people would like without asking them and doing some evaluation about it, I really think less is more. Um, it's just, it will make everyone feel more comfortable and be just much better Engagement, and that was a lot of what was coming out in um, the session that I did with Eric, and just being really mindful and looking at flow and how do you move through spaces and 
you know, what what does what does I always think of Judy Rand's um, Visitor Bill of Rights. Yes. And it's really, it's taking all of those concepts and, and also adding in cognitive issues um, and challenge to that and how, how do we make comfort. And I think if we all just designed more for ourselves and comfortability, we'd have much better environments for everybody. I think that's very, uh, that's a good rule of thumb, but I, I think that it's, that it's also... Uh, I've said on this show many times that I think museums uh, need to and may finally be perched uh, at a at a time in our history where we're owning <laughs> owning our our, our individuality. Uh, mm-hmm. We're we're owning ourselves as museums instead of saying uh, that we're like schools or we're like Disneyland or we're like something else. Uh, and and sometimes behaving as if we're embarrassed by who we are. That you know the the objects in our institutions are phenomenal uh, to look at, to understand, and to understand the stories. And perhaps sometimes we get in the way of, of telling those stories or uh, making these objects accessible because we keep feeling like we got to dress it up somehow. I completely agree. And it's, I think people really need to um, walk in out into their galleries and really just critically look around What's being engaged with? How are people reacting? Are their children crying? Why are they crying? Is it because there's just so much, you know, sound going on? Are their hands covering their ears? Or are they trying to close their eyes to, you know, stop looking at everything? So I think it's really a, um, I think we need to really start being a little bit more insightful and a little more thoughtful about the spaces that we're designing and just think about them more. You know, it's it's interesting of uh, you know, just sort of staying on this rift for a moment about the sensory um, with the sensory overload. But I can all I've also uh, I've sat in many conferences and discussions, as I know you have, and uh, where people have said who have reminded us quite honestly uh, uh, that people learn in different ways. People learn through sound and people learn through doing you know, physical activities, all of the Howard Gardner research. Mm-hmm. And so, as you know, inadvertently what we've done, instead of saying, yeah, that's great, we need to make sure that, that we have something for people who learn through sound or something uh, that people can learn by doing, um, we throw it all in the same 1,000-foot squares of exhibit space. <laughs> Yeah, we we uh, we have we've gone to the other extreme, I think. And and maybe that's our, you know, maybe you scratch the surface enough. It's a little bit of our own insecurity instead of saying, you know, we need to tell a really good story with a few things that are really memorable and uh, just leave it at that and uh, let leave people wanting more. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. So when I think about this, and I think about um, science and natural history museums, I mean, they're not quiet places. You know, we work in these buildings that have these huge open spaces with bright lighting and hard surfaces or bouncing sound everywhere. We have loud exhibits. There's lots of conversation and engagement going on, at least we hope there is. Um, and we want visitors to play and have fun. And, you know, we see these places as free choice learning environments. And you know, I've had those on the spectrum tell me it's hell and because it's 
a challenge for someone who has autism to deal with the place because there's so much stimulation coming from all angles and a variety of ways, so conversations and laughters and sounds and visual cues and auditory cues, and it's just too much of a unknown, high-stimuli environment. And what they're often looking for, like Naomi articulated in her videos, looking for some place that's low sensory, it's a structured environment with predictable experiences like a taxidermy hall. You know those animals aren't going to move. You know they're not going to say anything. It's very quiet and it's, you know, it's a place for reflection and time to just look and have those abilities. But I think the other thing is really challenging is that we provide opportunities for visitors to engage in meaningful ways with museum staff. So many people have docents out on the floor or explainers like it's exploratorium. But this is, I think, I think we in the museum field need to understand this is really a challenge for an autistic individual. So first of all, the sensory system is on overdrive due to the entire museum environment. And most likely, that autistic individual will not want to engage with a museum staff member. I know Naomi and other um, autistic adults have told me that, you know, people are really difficult to understand what they say, what their gestures, and their, you know, need to make eye contact. So why would I want to talk to someone that I don't even know? Which I think is a really interesting concept because we're all like, oh, well, people want to talk with us. Right. So, um you know, and then in in even demonstrations is another thing I think that we think about. Like the Exploratorium does a cow's eye dissection. We at the NAT do a rattlesnake feeding every two weeks. And, you know, people are really crowded together and they're close together. But for many autistic people, touch is incredibly painful. It's physically painful. And they avoid personal contact. So why would they want to scrunch into a full group to watch a demonstration when there's a crowd around them and they could get touched or bumped and that would cause them physical pain. So we've created these scenarios that we think everyone is going to like and enjoy, yet we're segregating a huge portion of the population, especially as these numbers are on the rise, uh, particularly those with sensory processing issues and autistic individuals. Oh, that's, that is a, a very good thing to, to keep in mind. Uh, yes, we often, uh, uh, we will, we throw people, <laughs> we throw people at things. Uh, and, uh, and that's not necessarily a, a good thing. I w- was thinking as well as when you were saying that you and Naomi, your family like to go into museums that, you know, on the slow time. I mean, mm-hmm. how many museum directors have I talked to over the years who said, gosh, how could I get more people in the gallery you know on a Tuesday afternoon and 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 maybe the answer is well advertise it as the quiet time for those people who who want fewer people in there uh, and you know over the week you'll get 10, 10 more people that you didn't you wouldn't have had any other way well and I know seniors really don't like coming when all school groups are there so I think we need to really start taking advantage of these slow times and like you said advertising them to groups that don't necessarily want the groups and bringing, you know, having a senior program or having a program for autistic individuals during those time frames because it is a quieter time and more, it will be a more successful and engaging experience for them. 
Oh, that's this is so wonderful. Uh, this has been such a great talk, Beth. I hope that you are in the process of of uh, working with Judy or on your own uh, creating that uh, that uh, uh, cognitive bill of rights. I think it's it's high time that we have more than uh, serendipitous or anecdotal evidence uh, that help us build uh, better creative. Uh, experiences that allow all of our visitors to feel safe and smart. I will I will start working on it tomorrow. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Had, had I that kind of authority and power for everything that I that I want done in the world. Beth, this has been Truly one of the most important shows I think I've done, uh, and I hope to have you back soon uh, to uh, share with us some of your, your other, other projects and activities. This is just really important for all of us, so thank you so very much. And I want um, to remind everyone to follow Beth on Twitter at Be, uh, B. Redmond Jones. Uh, she tweets about muse- museums and autisms, and we all need to be following her. Beth, thank you so very much. Thank you, Carol. I really appreciate you uh, bringing me on today. It's a really great subject, and I'm glad that you have the passion and understanding for it as well. So thank you. Well, thank you. And we will be back next week with another uh, a program on museum life. Uh, this is Carol Bossert. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.